Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Hegel, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Guardian, soon after Tanya Nickel disappeared in late October, Tom contacted police and participated in a voluntary interview. For whatever reason, Tom continued to contact the police in the following weeks. He was eventually placed under surveillance on November 9th. Two weeks later, 
police searched his home, near Felixstowe. As more women went missing, Tom continued to stay in touch with the police, telling officers, quote, If it had been me, I would have strangled them. But in the same breath, he always denied any involvement in the disappearances or murders of the women. From early on in the investigation, Tom had also spoken with both BBC News and the Daily Mirror newspaper. It was revealed that Tom actually knew all five victims and was familiar with Ipswich Red Light District. It also emerged that not only had all the women been to Tom's residence at some stage, but he didn't have an alibi for any of the nights the victims disappeared. As he did with the police, Tom told reporters he hypothetically could have been involved, saying, quote, I would have had complete opportunity. The girls trusted me so much. If I had blindfolded them and taken them to the edge of a cliff and said, quote, Take two steps, but don't take three, they'd have taken the two steps. From the police profiling, a lot of it looks like me. A white man, between 25 and 40, knows the area, works quite strange hours. Meanwhile, investigators had made further forensic progress. Analysts had managed to recover full matching DNA profiles of a male from the bodies of Anelli Alderton, Paula Cleno, and Annette Nichols. Detectives set to work fast-tracking the analysis of the profile, hoping to identify a match on the National DNA Database. They had a hit all right, but it didn't match Tom Stevens. In fact, the man they identified through the database hadn't even been a potential police suspect at all. Stephen Gerald James Wright, known to his family as Steve, was born in the Norfolk County Village of Erpingham on April 24, 1958. Directly north of Suffolk, Steve was the second of four children and the youngest of two boys. Born to Royal Air Force Military Policemen Conrad and Patricia, who was a vet nurse, Conrad's role meant the family often moved around the United Kingdom, living on several air bases. Before long, the family was traveling to more exotic locations, such as Malta, in the Mediterranean, and Singapore. Steve was said to have been a generally happy and well-behaved child who enjoyed playing at the beach with his siblings. The family returned to the UK in 1964 when Steve was six years old, but his world was soon to be turned upside down. Conrad's eventual plan was for the family to settle in Ipswich, where his relatives were based. In an ugly confrontation between himself and Patricia on the train trip to their new home, Patricia refused to alight with Conrad and the boys at Ipswich Station. Instead, she remained on the train with her two daughters and continued onwards. On the platform, eight-year-old Steve and his brother watched the train disappear into the distance with their mother and sisters on board. Conrad brought his daughters back to Ipswich several weeks later, but Patricia didn't return. Conrad was now a single working dad, but thankfully had the assistance of his parents and a babysitter named Valerie to help raise his four young children. Conrad and Patricia divorced, with Patricia eventually relocating to the United States and remarrying. Patricia later told Sky News that Steve and his brother were physically abused by Conrad, that the reason she left the marriage was due to the violence she also experienced. Quote, he was beaten a lot by his dad, and his dad also had come from a violent home where he was beaten as a child. That's no excuse, but I don't know if you can call that understandable. But he used to beat the boys, and he used to beat me, to the point where 
He almost killed me one time, and that's when I left. Two years after Patricia left, Conrad married Valerie, and the couple went on to have a son and daughter. It was a significant and stressful adjustment for Steve and his siblings. The only mother they knew had been long gone, and Conrad continued working full-time, which meant the kids were primarily in Valerie's care. According to The Guardian, Steve and his siblings clashed with their stepmother, and the atmosphere at home was often tense. Despite these difficulties, Steve's younger half-brother remembered him as someone who was always there to lend a hand and would do anything for anyone. Valerie remembered Steve as a very gentle person. Steve left Leeston Community High School in 1974 at age 16 and started working at Broodnell Hotel in the town of Aldborough. A year later, he joined the Merchant Navy and became a kitchen hand on the town's Torres Sun Ferries, based in Felixstowe. Steve had never had any issues attracting women, thanks to his natural charm. In 1978, age 20, he married a Welsh woman named Angela, and the couple moved to Wales. In 1980, 22-year-old Steve started working as a steward on the international cruise liner QE2, which took him around the world waiting on first-class passengers. During this time, as the ship docked at numerous exotic, far-flung destinations, including Thailand, Steve regularly took to engaging the services of sex workers on shore. When Steve returned home to Wales, his relationship with Angela turned violent, and she was subjected to regular beatings. The couple welcomed a son in 1983, but this couldn't save the marriage, and the couple separated in 1987, Later divorcing, the breakup hit Steve hard, and he moved back in with Conrad and Valerie in Ipswich. In August 1987, 29-year-old Steve remarried to a 32-year-old woman named Diane, whom he'd originally met in 1984, while they both worked on the QE2. During their courtship on board, Steve showered Diane with gifts and attention, but she found him to have a possessive nature, which was unsettling. On one occasion prior to their marriage, Diane came back to her crew cabin on the ship to see the words slag and whore daubed on her door. Stepping inside, Diane saw Steve cutting her uniforms into shreds with a knife. Upon seeing Diane, Steve lunged at her with the weapon, which became lodged in her cabin door. Just like his first marriage, Steve was violent towards his second wife. In May 1988, the couple moved to Norwich, where they managed a club called the ferry boat in until September. Steve's controlling behavior continued. Diane later told ITV News that Steve would lock her in the pub and take the keys with him. On other occasions, he disappeared for days at a time without telling Diane where he was going or where he'd been. The couple ended up separating in July 1988, and following their divorce, Steve took a new position managing the White House pub in the southeast London suburb of Chislehurst. According to The Guardian, Steve commenced a relationship with a female staff member. In 1990, the couple moved to Plumstead in South London, where they ran the Rose and Crown Pub. Steve and his girlfriend welcomed a daughter in 1992, but less than a year later, 34-year-old Steve was single again. Things got worse when Steve lost his job managing the pub due to gambling and heavy drinking. 
Despite being in a significant amount of debt, Steve continued to use the services of massage parlors and sex workers. In late 1992, Steve got a shock when his mother Patricia briefly reappeared when she visited the UK from San Diego for Christmas. But any hope of repairing the fractured mother-son relationship was dashed when Steve got drunk and verbally abused Patricia. As far as he was concerned, 30 years was too late for his mother to show any interest in reconnecting. In 1994, Steve's mental health deteriorated to such an extent that while suffering from depression, he tried to take his own life by poisoning himself in his car with carbon monoxide. Despite a brief hospital stay, things didn't really seem to improve. Steve's family noticed he no longer seemed to be the easygoing person they once knew. He was emotionally withdrawn, drifted from job to job, and often stayed with his father and stepmother. By the late 1990s, Steve was working at Felixstowe Docks and lived in the same village a half-hour drive southeast of Ipswich. He continued to rack up debt, and by 2000, had accumulated 40,000 pounds of debt and unsecured loans thanks to his gambling habit. That same year, he got himself into further financial trouble. Steve sold his vehicle and personal belongings to fund a 10-week holiday to Thailand. During his trip, he spent the majority of his time with sex workers, returning to the UK completely broke. By this stage, things had spiraled so out of control for Steve that he made a second attempt at taking his life by overdosing on medication, but he survived. In 2001, while working at a bingo hall in Felixstowe, 43-year-old Steve met a woman 10 years his senior named Pam. The couple soon moved in together. Steve was an avid golfer and enjoyed playing rounds at Hintlesham Hall and Seckford Golf Clubs. Steve soon started working as a barman at the Brock Hotel in Felixstowe, but again lost his job after stealing 84 pounds from the till to pay for his gambling debts. He was convicted of theft, sentenced to 100 hours community service, and his DNA was registered to the national database. He found another job as a forklift truck driver in the nearby villages of Mendelsham and Hadley. In 2004, Steve and Pam moved to Ipswich, renting a flat in Bellclose. They dreamed about one day retiring to the Devon countryside in the southwest of England. But six months later, unbeknownst to Pam, 46-year-old Steve again began seeing sex workers. In October 2006, the couple moved again, this time to a two-story, semi-detached home on London Road, smack bang in the middle of Ipswich's red light district. By this stage, Pam was working night shifts at a call center, with Steve working during the day. Their conflicting work schedules meant they didn't see each other as often, and Steve continued to visit massage parlors. This was becoming expensive, so Steve returned to using street sex workers near his home. He was a regular in the area and had encounters with around a dozen sex workers in the red light area. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As we navigate the complex narratives of true crime, it's clear that life's stressors, both big and small, can accumulate, affecting our daily lives and mental health. It's important to have a space to voice these concerns. To unravel the personal mysteries we carry within us, therapy offers a safe space to do just that. It's not only for moments of crisis, but for anyone aiming to foster better coping skills, 
set healthy boundaries, and ultimately thrive. BetterHelp facilitates this by providing online therapy that's tailored to your schedule, making it both convenient and flexible. With BetterHelp, starting therapy is straightforward. Fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. If you find your needs aren't being met, you can switch therapist at any time without any additional charges, ensuring you find the right fit for your journey. If you've been considering therapy or curious about how it can help, give BetterHelp a try. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com Obscura today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Obscura. Take a moment to support your mental health. With Suffolk Constabulary, having identified Steve's DNA following the murders, police placed him under 24-hour surveillance. Investigators needed all their ducks in a row to ensure any arrest went off without a hitch. On December 19th, officers burst into the 48-year-old's home at 5 a.m., arresting him on suspicion of five murders. The accused killer appeared detached and unaffected by his predicament. During questioning back at the station, there was no protestation of innocence, nor any unburdening of terrible secrets. Steve repeatedly replied to the numerous questions put to him by detectives during the first eight hours of interview with, quote, no comment. You need to speak to us. You need to tell us what was going through your mind at the time. You need to tell us what's going through your mind now and how you feel about it now. This is your earliest opportunity to give an account. And that is significant because it makes a difference. You need to give us an account as to what's happened. We've got the last girl to go missing with your DNA and the one before with your DNA. Both on their naked bodies. How can that be? When news of Steve's identity broke as the suspected serial killer, part of the media's fascination with Steve Wright was his plain ordinariness. To look at his photos splashed across the front pages of Britain's daily newspapers, here was a man who looked completely nondescript and banal, slightly overweight with a receding hairline. He could have been anyone's unassuming next-door neighbor. Police still had their work cut out for them to ensure they had a watertight case at court. They turned to the 10,000 hours of CCTV footage to bolster their case. Steve's car could clearly be seen driving through the red light district of Ipswich on key dates and times linked to the disappearances of the five women. The dark blue Ford Mondeo was also confirmed as the dark-colored vehicle which Tanya Nickel was captured getting into. Based on this footage, police were able to reconstruct Steve's movements. Two days after Steve's arrest, it was announced that he had been charged with the murders of Tanya, Gemma Adams, Anneli Alderton, Paula Clennell, and Annette Nichols. Tom Stevens was arrested on bail, which would later be canceled altogether and no further inquiries considered necessary. At the forefront of the minds of both the investigative team and the Crown Prosecution Service in the lead-up to the trial, was the need for a balanced and responsible media coverage. 
The last thing detectives and prosecutors wanted was prejudicial media reports, which would undo all their hard work. On December 22nd, Steve appeared before court and was remanded in custody. He continued to protest his innocence, writing a letter to his father while awaiting trial. Quote, Whenever I get upset, I tend to bury it deep inside, which I suppose is not a healthy thing to do, because the more I do that, the more withdrawn I become. Because I have seen too much anger and violence in my childhood to last anyone a lifetime. My head seems to be all over the place at the moment, so please try and sort this out. I know you are a proud man and don't like backing down, but you are the only one that can sort this out. You say you want to help, so please do me that one thing. Police immediately seized Steve's vehicle for forensic testing. Despite his neighbors telling investigators they often saw Steve meticulously cleaning his car on a regular basis, on the back seat, minuscule spots of blood were found to be a partial match to Paula Clennell's DNA profile. Faux fur fibers recovered from the footwell of the vehicle also matched those found on Annette Nichols' body. Traces of blood belonging to both Paula and Annette, and other traces of DNA belonging to the victims were also found on a high-vis jacket, which Steve owned, as well as a pair of his gloves. The DNA evidence implicating Steve in the murders of Anelli, Paula, and Annette was compelling, but it wasn't an open-and-shut case. Steve had openly admitted to engaging the services of sex workers. It was therefore a reasonable defense to assert that Steve's DNA was on the women's bodies as a result of consensual encounters. The case against Steve for the murders of Tanya Nichol and Gemma Adams was also nothing more than circumstantial. This raised the possibility that Tom Stevens could somehow be involved in the first two murders. Forensic analysis conducted the painstaking and time-consuming task of sorting through the samples of Tanya and Gemma's hair, analyzing their findings to see if anything conclusive linking Steve could be recovered. Their persistence and patience paid off. After carefully sifting through almost two kilograms of silt and debris from the brook which had matted in the women's hair, Gemma's hair yielded colored fibers consisting of blue polyester microfiber, the exact same fiber composition as a pair of Steve's tracksuit pants, which had been seized by police. Gemma's hair also contained red acrylic fibers, which matched those found in Steve's car and from his living room couch. Tanya's hair too provided investigators with forensic link they needed. A black nylon fiber from Tanya's head matched the carpet fiber inside the footwell of Steve's car, indicating that her head had been forced to the floor at one stage. Steve's partner, Pam, was in a state of shock following his arrest. Police relocated her to Essex to live in a safe house for her own protection till the conclusion of Steve's upcoming trial. Christmas came and went for the families of the five murdered women, they then had to wait another four months until Steve Wright appeared at Ipswich Crown Court on May 1st, 2007. Pleading not guilty to all five counts of murder, it would then be another eight months before Steve was required to answer the charges against him in court. The trial began on January 14, 2008. For the first time, the public learned the shocking details of how Steve callously disposed of the bodies of each of his victims, this including the posing of Anelli Alderton and Annette Nichols' bodies. Steve took the stand in his own defense. He stated that it was following his move to London Road in October 2006 
he started engaging in the services of local street sex workers. When he realized that he had easy access to sex workers who charged between 20 and 40 pounds, he stopped frequenting massage parlors where he'd previously been paying around 65 pounds and 80 pounds for sex. Steve was insistent that he initially had no idea he was living in the heart of Ipswich's red light district. He had only used sex workers in the area around a dozen times between October and December. According to The Guardian, Steve told the court he and Pam were very happy, but their sex life wasn't what it used to be. When Pam started working night shifts, their intimacy only became more infrequent. Steve would often drop Pam off at work and go out curb crawling. When Steve was asked under cross-examination if the weighty and compelling evidence against him was simply a matter of coincidence, he responded including, quote, It appears so, yes. The problem for Steve was that there were a total of 57 of these evidentiary coincidences. He provided a range of evasive and unconvincing similar responses to numerous other questions put to him by the prosecution. This ranged from denying the murder allegations to responding, quote, I couldn't say, and quote, I can't answer that. Before the jury retired to consider its verdict, the judge reminded them to remain focused on considering the facts of the case, however difficult that may be. Quote, the loss of these five young lives is clearly a tragedy. You are likely to have sympathy for the deceased and their families. Your sympathy must not sway you. You may view with some distaste the lifestyles of those involved. Whatever the drugs they took, whatever the work they did, no one is entitled to do these women any harm, let alone kill them. On February 21st, 2008, after deliberating for eight hours and hearing five weeks, and hearing five weeks of evidence, the jury found Steve Wright guilty of murdering all five women. During the sentencing phase, the prosecution pushed for the convicted killer to never be released. The judge agreed, stating that a substantial degree of premeditation and planning occurred. Quote, It is right you should spend your whole life in prison. This was a targeted campaign of murder. The five women were addicted to drugs that led them to prostitution in order to fund their addictions. Drugs and prostitution exposed them to the risk but neither killed them. You did. You were responsible for their deaths. You killed them, stripped them, and left them in rural or semi-rural locations. Why you did, it may never be known, but as the jury have concluded disbelieving your denials, murder them you did. Steve Wright will never be released from prison. The family members of the victims welcomed the verdict. Gemma Adams' father, Brian, commented, quote, I am very relieved and pleased for all the families that this is now over, and we can now start to get on with our lives. I can't speak highly enough about the police in this case. I don't have any feelings about right. Tanya Nichols' father, Jim, told Sky News, quote, It's right he goes to jail for life, and if this person wants to be an obnoxious, arrogant maniac then he's certainly not going to heaven. For some of the families, the sentence didn't go far enough. Paul O'Connell's brother-in-law, Craig, spoke on behalf of the family, calling for the death penalty to be reinstated for the United Kingdom. Paul's mother, Isabella, later told a documentary by Quest TV 
Quote, no parent should have to bury their child. No parent. It was devastating beyond belief. This sort of thing shouldn't happen to anyone, not just Paula. She was helpless, homeless, penniless. The girls on the street, all five of them, had some sort of lifestyle. People used to look down their nose at them. I used to ask Paula, why did she do it? She would say, Hum, because I'm a heroin addict. She was a fair good lass, lovely girl. I miss her dearly. Following Steve's sentencing, his 60-year-old partner Pam told reporters that she hoped he'd rot in hell. But only a month later, she told Channel 4 that the pair continued to maintain in contact that she did not believe Steve was guilty. The nature and circumstances of the 2006 Ipswich murders raised questions for the relatives of the women who had disappeared or were murdered in locations where Steve Wright was known to have lived and worked over the years and whose cases remained unsolved. Police commenced inquiries into those cold cases, including the disappearances and presumed murder of 25-year-old London real estate agent Susie Lamplew in July 1986. Steve and Susie had worked together on the QE2 during the early 1980s and were believed to have had shore leave at the same time at one stage. The London Metropolitan Police have excluded Steve as a possible line of inquiry into Susie's death. Gemma Adams' parents, Brian and Gail, established a charity in their late daughter's memory. The Gemma's Gift Appeal is in aid of the East Anglia Children's Hospices, which provides care for children and young people with life-threatening conditions and their families across Cambridgeshire, Essex, Norfolk, and Suffolk. To this day, and as evidenced in his appeals to date, Stephen Wright has refused to admit to or discuss any possible motivations for the murders. As such, we can only hazard a guess as to his reasons for cruelly snuffing out the lives of the vulnerable young women dealing with these challenges of drug addiction and were doing nothing more than trying to support themselves in the only way they knew how to survive. Steve's 72-year-old partner, Pam, has since relocated to the county of Devon to live closer to her son. More than 10 years after the horrific murders, Ipswich is not entirely the same place it once was. Street sex work and curb crawling in the town are not necessarily a thing of the past, but sex workers are now said to be safer thanks to local outreach initiatives helping women access both drug rehabilitation services and strategies to help them exit sex work. But I think that about wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.